Matthew 10, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 15. And when Jesus had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them authority against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staffs, for the workman is worthy of his food. And into whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Let's pray again. Father, as we come together, as we sing your praises, as we've done already and prayed unto you, and now, Lord, as we open up the scriptures and we read your word, the words of your Son, Jesus, Lord, I ask that this morning you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, each one, that everyone here would hear from you this morning, that they would not just hear from man, but that you give us ears to hear your Spirit speaking to us this morning, to each one, wherever we are. Lord, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you love us as a father loves his children. And may we see that love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week in chapter 9, I want to just draw our attention to verse 36 of chapter 9 we saw one of the most striking things there is to see about Jesus. If you miss this, you really miss the whole point. Now, in chapter 9, we saw a whole bunch of miracles of Jesus, didn't we? We saw him raise the dead. We saw a woman come up behind him and just simply touch his garment. And unbeknownst to Jesus, she was healed. Now, those are amazing things. And we've already seen the power of Christ displayed in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus command the sea and the, and the wind. Can you imagine? 
He didn't pray to God. He commanded, and they obeyed him. So we've seen the power of Jesus clearly evident. Now, many people see that. And many people believe in Jesus because of those miracles, and they say, wow, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came into the world from heaven. And look at all the miracles that he did. Wow, he's amazing. I should follow him. And maybe I'll get a miracle or two coming my way as well. Right? If you believe, and you should, that Jesus is powerful and mighty and can do miracles, that's good. If you believe that but miss this, then you've really missed the whole point. And do you think it's common to miss this point in verse 36? I think so. It's easier to believe, we saw last week, it's easier to believe in supernatural miracles than in supernatural love. Verse 36. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. That is a rare window into the heart of Jesus. That's what's going on inside of him. It's one thing to see what he does, and it's another thing to see why he does it. Everything that Jesus did was because of his compassion for people. The miracles that he did were done through compassion. And in verse 36, what did he see that moved him to compassion? He looked upon the multitudes and he saw them like sheep, but not just like sheep. He saw them as neglected sheep who were starving to death and fainting. So in the King James, it's actually a good translation because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The word scattered abroad in the Greek means they were, they were so weak, they were fainting and they were falling down on the ground. They were being cast down on the ground from lack of food. Turn to Matthew chapter 15, 32. We did look at this last week, but it's worthy of looking at again. Matthew 15, 32. Very much the same thing. We see a little window into the heart of Jesus this time it's a physical need, but I think you can parallel them. In verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitudes because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, that's physically, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint, same Greek word, in the way. So, here we see in the physical realm Jesus looking upon these people who are physically hungry, and he said, I don't want to send them away, because if I send them away, they're going to faint and fall down on the ground with nothing to eat. And in the spiritual, it's the same way. He looks upon these people whom the, the teachers in Israel are supposed to be teaching them about the law, teaching them about righteousness, teaching them about God, and they have not given them the bread of life, that spiritual bread that nourishes the soul. And so they faint. When you, brothers and sisters, think about someone's needs, do you think merely of their physical needs or do you also think of one's spiritual needs? If you look upon someone who's starving, how many of you have seen those pictures or commercials of, of young children who are starving physically in, say, Africa? And you can see physically a great need there, right? They're fainting. Many of them are dying because they don't have food. That's a, that's a true need that Jesus sees. But that's not the only need that Jesus sees. Jesus sees through just the physical to see that in this world there are people who spiritually look like those starving African children. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever seen somebody that way? 
And what's most interesting about that is that a person who's starving and fainting spiritually can look on the outside perfectly healthy, right? And contrary to that, someone who looks physically unwell can be spiritually well, right? Jesus cares about our needs and he sees exactly what our needs are. God cares about your soul. I just want to make that very clear this morning. God loves you. And he doesn't just, he's not merely concerned, and he is, about your physical needs, and he'll take care of your physical needs, Jesus said. But more than that, God is concerned and cares for your soul. And isn't that a wonderful thing to know that God cares about your soul? That there is someone else besides you that cares about the stuff inside of you right? Now, you care about the outside and the inside, I hope, but God cares about your soul. And the things that he says, he says to us because he really does have our soul's interest in his heart. He says it for our good. So let me encourage you that this is what Jesus reveals to us about God, and each one of us should trust in God and listen to God when he tells us things about our soul, not just about our physical needs. People take physical advice pretty easily. You know, if you want to get rich in this world, and if you want to get food, and if you don't want to get robbed, do this. Okay, I'll listen to that. But when it comes to spiritual advice, it seems like people don't listen to God. They'll listen to what sounds good to them, but do they listen to what God through Jesus has to say? And you'll notice in verse 37 and 38, this compassion that Jesus had for the needs, for the spiritual needs of the people, prompted him to send out the 12 apostles, which we're going to look at now this morning in chapter 10. So the sending out of the apostles is prompted by the spiritual need of the people. Jesus is one man. He's come out of heaven. He's one man. He can't talk to everybody at once. The harvest is plentiful, he said. People, there's a need. The emphasis on the harvest being plentiful, but the labors are few, is on the labors being few, and there's a need. There's an incredible need here. And there's only very few people actually helping others be whole spiritually. We need to pray, Jesus said, that God would send out more laborers. In Luke, we see Jesus does go on a mountain and pray right before he sends out the twelve. Apostleship. Notice in chapter 10, verse 2, the names of the twelve apostles are these. Do you know what an apostle is? An apostle is someone who is sent. That's what the word apostle means. You're an apostle if you're sent. And apostleship or when you're dealing with sending, in this context of God sending people to help other people, apostleship reveals the love of God that he has for people. If God didn't care about you, if God didn't care about the people, he wouldn't send apostles, right? If God, maybe God sees a need, and he says, you know, there's a huge need there, but I see it, but I just don't care enough to do anything about it. I'm not going to send anyone to fill that need. Have you ever seen a need and you didn't care enough to do anything about it? Anybody? <laughs> okay, God 
saw our need and sent. And the fact that he sent proves he cares. So apostleship itself, this whole chapter 10, if you, get, if you take a step back from all the details and you just think about the fact that Jesus is sending and that God sent Jesus, you see the proof of God's love. Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Because he didn't care about Nineveh? They were sinners. They were going to perish in 40 days. He was going to wipe them out like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But God cared. Jonah ostensibly didn't care, right? Because even after they turned, he was a little upset that they turned. He said, God, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you were merciful. These are our enemies. (laughs) I'd prefer them to be wiped out. Interesting that Jonah was sent. He was an apostle, but he wasn't thinking apostleship, was he? Who else was sent? Jesus was sent. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus did not sneak out of heaven, right? Seeing the Father's wrath, Jesus did not say, I'm just going to sneak out of here and go save people from my daddy. He didn't think that. The Father himself sent the Son to save us because the Father loves the world. And so Jesus reveals to us the love that the Father has. Jesus, everything we see about Jesus, the fact that he came, and everything that he felt and everything they did, we see the Father and his goodness. So apostleship, the sending, reveals the one who sends. Now look at verse 1. He sends the twelve, he calls them to himself, and he gives them authority against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, have we already seen that already in the Gospel of Matthew? Have we seen healing of diseases and casting out of demons? Who's been doing that? Jesus. And so essentially what Jesus is doing here is extending his own ministry through the twelve. He's saying, look, the labors are few. We need to have more workers. So I'm going to send you guys to do exactly what I'm doing. Now you'll notice that this is not a blanket calling for all Christians, but for the 12, that he gives them authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons. Now to be sure, all of us are called to a task by God, both individually and as a church. As a church together, God calls us and sends us into the world. And individually, each one of us has a special task that God gives. And this is the 12's task. You'll remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, are all apostles? It's rhetorical. What's the answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? Have all gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No. So, Paul says there's one spirit, there's one God, there's one body, but there's many members, and God calls us as a body to something. As a corporate body, we have a task in this world, and he calls each one. And let me encourage you, um, do you know what God has called you to do? Do you know the gifts that he's given you? 
not going to go into that today. But did you know that after Paul says this, immediately after he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, he then goes on to talk about something we are all called to, and do you know what it is? Love. He goes into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, look, not everybody is going to do everything, but here's something that we all are to pursue. Because if you don't have this, then whatever you do have doesn't really matter. Love. God definitely calls us as a church and each one of you sitting here who is a Christian to emulate the love that God has. To love. So if you don't know what your gift is, if you don't know what your calling is, you don't know what your task is, you could start with love. And probably love will send you to do things and you'll find out pretty quick where your gifts are, right? Sometimes pursuing love is the key to understanding what your other gifts are. Shouldn't that be the way it is? Should you pursue your other gifts without love? Not according to 1 Corinthians 13. So pursue love. And everything else will fall into place. Let's look at these disciples. And I think we should be encouraged by whom Christ chose to extend his own ministry, and to be the Twelve. This is really an interesting group. This is not the group you would expect if you were to have written this, or if you were to have been Jesus and chosen Twelve to represent you and to take the gospel of the kingdom to the other cities and preach about him. You might not choose these guys, but he did. So the first four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these are the closest to Jesus, he chooses four fishermen, right? Now, there could have been more fishermen on here, but we just don't know. We know for sure that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen. We know that because Jesus called them from their fishing boats, these four guys. Drop your nets, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, right? And so they did follow. But it's interesting that the closest to Jesus here, we'll, we'll later see that Peter, who is the first in the list, and every time there's a list, he's always the first, because he was the leader. Peter denied the Lord three times. All the twelve denied the Lord and fled on the night that really he needed the most. Peter was called Satan by Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus has an uncanny way of choosing people that turn out to be bad for him, right? He chose us too, right? <laughs> James and John, at one point, John, the beloved disciple, uh, when Jesus is rejected by a certain city, they say, Jesus, let's do what Elijah did and call down fire from heaven and destroy them. <laughs> How's that sound? And he says, you guys don't know what spirit you're of. Well, you chose me, Jesus, right? I'm only here because of you, but you don't know what spirit you're of, Jesus said. You're obviously not understanding who I am. And what spirit I'm of. I, mean, I didn't come to destroy lives. I came to save. Even at that point, they hadn't figured it out. The next person in the list in chapter 3 is Philip. Philip is a Greek, not a Hebrew name, which means that Philip was probably a Hellenistic Jew. A Hellenistic Jew is a Jew that was, that was synthesizing 
the Hebrew culture and the Greek culture together in that, in that time. So there were many Jews who didn't want to do that. So the Greeks had basically taken over, then the Romans had come and taken over, and Israel was uh, being ruled by the Romans. People were speaking Greek. And there were many Jews that were like, no, we don't want to be corrupted by the Greek culture. We don't want to start thinking about Greek thoughts and speaking in Greek. We're going to stay with our own Hebrew culture, our own Hebrew thoughts, our own Hebrew language. But there was a lot of Jews that were saying, well, look, this is what God has brought to our table. This is the natural flow of things. We're going to Hellenize. We're going to be Jewish. Philip was Jewish. But we're going to be Greek-like in our culture, in our language. We're going to show the Greeks that, that uh, the God of Israel is the one true God and that this works. So Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, likely. It's interesting that later in John chapter 12, when the Greeks wanted to see Jesus, it actually says that they sought out Philip to gain access to Jesus. Remember that? So when finally the Greeks came to Jesus, they came to Philip first, maybe indicating he was probably the most easily approachable of the group. So there would have been a little bit of conflict, perhaps, in, in Jesus choosing a Hellenistic Jew. You'll remember that Philip also um, said at the very end, show us the Father, right? Show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you, Philip? Right? Don't you get it by now that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Why do you say, show me the Father? So once again, Philip seems to put his foot in his mouth. Bartholomew. Who's Bartholomew? <laughs> Seems like he's an apostle we don't really know much about, right? Now, most scholars agree, and I agree with them, that Bartholomew is Nathaniel. And the reason why Bartholomew is seen as being Nathaniel, you remember Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, is that Nathaniel in the Gospel of John is never mentioned in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Bartholomew, who's mentioned in the Synoptics, is never mentioned in the Gospel of John. And here in our list, Philip and Bartholomew are seen together. So actually, in this list of apostles in our chapter 10, people are paired together. Do you see Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew? And what you see in John is Philip and Nathaniel are almost always together, hanging out together. Philip is the one that brought Nathaniel to Jesus. So for those reasons, scholars believe Philip or Bartholomew is likely Nathaniel. And actually, Bartholomew is not the guy's name. He would be the son of Tholomew. <laughs> Bar means son in Hebrew. So probably the man's name was Nathaniel Bar Tholomew. <laughs> Follow? Uh, interesting, Nathaniel said, when Philip said, we have found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, B Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, didn't uh, get too excited about that, but said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, actually, the Messiah came out of Nazareth. <laughs> good foresight there, Nathaniel. Next is Thomas. Thomas Didymus is the full title that we find in the Gospels. Both of those words mean twin. Thomas the twin. In Hebrew, Thomas means twin, and Didymus is the Greek word for, twi for twin. So actually, Thomas was probably a twin. So actually, Elliot and Nathaniel, you're in good company here. <laughs> Do you know that uh, 
Jesus chose a twin. Interesting. Why didn't he choose the other twin? Can you imagine? <laughs> Maybe they were identical twins. <laughs> Jesus did any mini money mo. <laughs> we don't know why, but it is interesting. It is interesting that Jesus chose a twin, isn't it? Likely he did. And of course, how did Thomas fare as a disciple? Even after, even after the resurrection, even after all of the apostles said, well, first of all, Jesus himself said he would raise, then his tomb is empty, then all of the apostles tell Thomas that they saw the Lord, and even then Thomas says, I, had, I will not believe, not until I see for myself. Jesus rebukes him. Interesting group of guys here. Next, we have Matthew, the publican. The fact that he's indicated as the publican here probably shows that Matthew is the author of this book, that he includes himself and he says, I'm the publican. In Mark and Luke, it doesn't include that detail. Matthew, the tax collector, the despised tax collector, one of the worst kind of sinners there was in Israel, probably worse in the eyes of most Jews than even a fornicator because he is going against God by siding with the Romans against his own people. And yet Jesus chooses a publican. James is probably one of the guys we know the least about. Some think he is James the Less. James the Less is mentioned in Mark 15:40, but there's no details given. Could be James the Less to distinguish him from the other James. James and Mary are extremely common names um, in Jewish culture. James is the anglicized version of Jacob, and Mary is the anglicized version of Miriam. And Jacob and Miriam are very famous. So there's a lot of James and there's a lot of Mary. And if you ever read the Bible, you ever wonder why there's so many Marys and so many Johns and James? It's because those are very popular names. Lebius Thaddeus. Um, is Judas or Jude. So how do we know that Lebius Thaddeus is Jude, who wrote our epistle Jude, is because in the other two lists of the apostles in um, Mark and Luke and also in Acts, instead of Lebius Thaddeus, in his exact place, you have Jude. So we just put the dots together and say, okay, these guys have multiple names. That was very common in those days. So Jude here is being spoken of. We don't know very much about him. Next, we have Simon the Canaanite. Does that strike you as strange that it says Simon the Canaanite? Is that what it says in all of our translations? Well, that kind of strikes me as strange because what do you mean the Canaanite? Isn't he a Jew? And weren't the Canaanites ousted? A long time ago. And actually, the confusion here uh, is not that Simon is a Canaanite nationally, as in the old people of the land of Canaan, but that it's actually the Hebrew word for zealot. The Hebrew word for zeal is kana. And so in Mark and Luke, you find him called Simon the zealot. Here, it's just the Hebrew word that Matthew is using because Matthew is writing to the Jewish people um, and so he uses the Hebrew word. Simon the Zealot is the point that Matthew is saying. And a zealot in the first century was a particular group of people who were committed to overthrowing the Romans, who were committed to 
the uh, nation of Israel's autonomy and theocracy under God. And they didn't like the Romans there. Many of the Jews were willing to work with the Romans. The Zealots were not. The Zealots are considered to be the first terrorists. Did you know that? By, by uh, our world. Because they would actually commit acts of terror. Josephus himself said the Zealots caused a reign of terror in Israel. And they were killing people, trying to get the Romans out. They would even, there were some zealots that would even kill other Jews who sided with the Romans. So they really did not like Jews who sided with the Romans, which is interesting that you have Matthew, the publican, and Simon, the zealot, in the same group, same inner circle. But it's interesting that Jesus would choose a zealot to be part of his group. In the end, it was actually the zealots that brought the destruction of Jerusalem because they revolted and the Romans came to quell that revolt and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. How many of you are familiar with the story of Masada? Are you familiar with this? After Jerusalem was destroyed, after the temple was destroyed, the zealots, their last army, fled to a fortress called Masada. It was way up high in a, in a, on a cliff. And for three years, they opposed the Romans. The Romans were trying to destroy that fortress and destroy them. And for three years, they couldn't do it until finally the Romans built this massive ramp. It's a, it was a huge engineering feat. They built this massive ramp up the side of the cliff with all their siege weapons, went up that ramp, and they broke through the wall of Masada, and they found that all the zealots who were there had committed suicide. Famous story. Rather than being captured by the Romans or killed by the Romans, they all killed themselves. Amazing story. Just a little historical background to Simon here. And lastly in our list, we have the famous Judas Iscariot. Jesus chose the very one who would be the catalyst for his capture. The one who would betray him. There's some different theories about what Iscariot means. Some think it means the liar, the traitor, the one who hung himself. But most scholars don't think that's what Iscariot means. They agree that it means the man of Kiriath. It's a Hebrew word. Kiriath is a city, and probably Judas was from that city. Ish Kiriath, man from Kiriath. That means Judas was the only non-Galilean of the group. Now, when you look at these guys, we do learn one thing. Remember Lord Acton's quote that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely? He said something else a few sentences below that in the letter that he wrote. He said, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. What he means is, just because someone is an apostle, or just because someone is uh, called to a prestigious office, like say the Pope, or even a president, that doesn't mean that he's automatically a good person, or that he's automatically, that just because he's that office, that the office sanctifies him and makes him somehow special. These men were ordinary men called to an extraordinary task. They weren't extraordinary men, as we see in the Gospels, which is very encouraging for us. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, wrote this. Orders do not confer the saving grace of the Holy Ghost. Orders meaning when God calls and sends you out. 
ordained men are not necessarily converted. We are not to regard them as infallible, either in doctrine or in practice. We are not to make popes or idols of them and insensibly to put them in Christ's place. This is important because many people think that if someone is an apostle or if someone is a prophet or if someone is a bishop or if someone is a president or if someone's a priest or a pastor, then everything they say you should listen to. Without, he says, insensibly. Now, you might say, yeah, of course that's true. Now, how many people in this world follow a man insensibly? Now, we follow Jesus, but I hope we follow him sensibly. And I hope we follow the apostles sensibly, meaning we're convinced they're trustworthy. We don't just say, oh, because they're an apostle, they're trustworthy. Or because he did a miracle, he's trustworthy. But we have reasons to believe they are. But the sad fact is that many people in this world follow offices insensibly. And they listen to whatever they say, and they don't question it, and they don't think about it, and they don't even consider that this person could be wrong or leading them astray, and that the office does not sanctify the holder of it. Ryle goes on to say, we are to regard them as men of like passions with ourselves, liable to the same infirmities and daily requiring the same grace. We are not to think it impossible for them to do very bad things or to expect them to be above the reach of harm from flattery, covetousness, and the world. We are to prove their teaching by the word of God and to follow them insofar as they follow Christ, but no further. Above all, we ought to pray for them that they may be successors not of Judas Iscariot, but of James and John. It is a serious responsibility to be a minister of the gospel, and they need our prayers. I think that's very important. Now the Great Commission at the end of Matthew says, go into all the world, preach the good news to every creature. And here in verse 5, draw your eyes there, Jesus sends out the 12 with the word go not, Right? So you have the Great Commission, says go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Here it says go not into the way of the Gentiles. Do not go into the cities of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now they're extending the ministry of Jesus. Jesus later says, I wasn't sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew chapter 15 verse 24. When the woman comes to Jesus and says, come heal my child, he says, I was not sent. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love the Gentiles. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love the Gentiles and doesn't want them to be saved and healed. But God has a plan and God has a timing. Jesus was sent as a man to Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For him to say the lost sheep of the house of Israel implies that there are lost sheep outside of the house of Israel. But at this time, the apostles were only sent to the lost sheep in Israel. When God chose Israel, he did not choose them because he doesn't care about the whole world. But because he does care about the whole world. And God chose Israel to be an instrument through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God has a plan and God has a timing for what he does. The whole world is under sin 
Gentiles and Jews, we learn from Scripture. But God chose Abraham and that people to be an instrument through which all the nations shall be blessed. In fact, it's through Israel's rejection of Jesus when he went to them and them only and they rejected him that it opened the door for the whole world to come to God. So God has a plan. So don't take this as a statement of Christ's or God's lack of concern for Gentiles, but simply his timing. Lost sheep is a concept from the Old Testament. Because there's no shepherd, the sheep are lost, neglected, and suffering. You'll also remember in Isaiah 53, verse 6, the prophet says these famous words, all we like sheep are lost, right? We've gone astray, and we've each one turned to our own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. To be lost in Christian vocabulary is not only a blame, it's not only that you've gone astray, that you have turned your own way, and that's true, but it's also a statement of pity, that God cares for you, even though you've gone astray, even though, like the prodigal son, you have gone away from God and sinned against God greatly. He still loves you. And when the son came back, the father said, my son who was lost is now found. He's dead and now he's alive. There's a statement of pity there. Jesus said, when you find a lost sheep, don't you rejoice. You don't just scold it, even though what it did was wrong. It's a statement not of hopelessness. When we say someone is lost, we don't mean they're hopeless. They can be found. But it is a statement of danger and of need. My friend Dave Story in New Brunswick, he's a pastor in a little town in New Brunswick, he has this saying, what's the only thing worse than being lost? What's worse than being lost? Okay, but suppose you know you're lost. What's worse? Being lost and nobody's looking for you. That's worse. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And lost here points to their spiritual, not their physical condition. The healing miracles were not ends in themselves, but means to the ends. As we've talked about, a person can be physically well and spiritually unwell. And Jesus is concerned now with our spiritual wholeness, our spiritual health. Last chapter he said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick, right? I'm here to eat with the publicans and the sinners because they need forgiveness. They need the bread of life. They need to know God. They're lost if they don't. If you are not forgiven of your sins, you are lost. You're not spiritually healthy if you're not forgiven. It amazes me how some people can think they're spiritually healthy and in the same breath they can say, I'm working on forgiveness. That doesn't make any sense. If you are not forgiven of your sins, your relationship with God is not healthy. You are lost. And you also don't know God because you only know God when you've experienced his forgiveness. If you're trying to obtain his forgiveness, you don't yet know him. And you're not healthy. You're lost. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus is most concerned about the preaching of this good news. Not necessarily the healing. Healing and deliverance are not central, but preaching. And they're to preach the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. 
The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is what everyone was waiting for, everyone was longing for in Israel. They were anticipating a kingdom, the kingdom of God to come. This was the message of John the Baptist. Do you remember earlier? John the Baptist said the very same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. You remember Jesus himself said that, Matthew chapter 4. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he sends the apostles with the same message. And the apostle Paul also, in the book of Acts chapter 20 said, he went everywhere preaching the grace of God, which is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Brothers and sisters, in the next, these four chapters, 10, 11, 12, and 13, we're going to be talking a lot about what the kingdom of God is because Matthew now turns our attention to this. He's not introducing Jesus anymore. He's not dealing generally with, the mess, with his uh, healing ministry. We're going to see in the next four chapters the controversy of the kingdom. This message started to get people confused. Even John the Baptist got confused about this message. We're going to see next chapter. What is the kingdom of God? And we'll just briefly touch on this this morning. The kingdom of God could be defined as God's saving rule. The rule of God. Now there's a sense in which God rules over everything, right? We say that in the Psalms and we say that in our songs. God rules over all things. And that's true. There's another sense in which some things in this world are out of sorts, right? And there are enemies of God that are not submitting to his rule, right? So while he does rule over all, in another sense he does not because people resist God and people are his enemies. If someone is an enemy of God, they're not under the rule of God, whose rule are they under? Satan. And the scripture talks about Satan being the God of this age, the one who rules in this age. At this time, it means, not forever, but at this time, Satan has a rule, a reign, a kingdom, Jesus says. And people are in that kingdom of darkness, and they're not submitting to the rule of God. Those who are under the rule of Satan will be destroyed, but those who are in the kingdom of God and under the rule of God will be saved. Now the Jews were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. The Jews saw this, that although God reigns over all, not everything is, so there's things that are out of sorts. And the Jews were waiting for the kingdom of God to come and to rule over all things, all the earth, Satan to be ousted, sinners to be taken away, and God's kingdom to come. They believed that death would be conquered, that the curse would be reversed. This is the Old Testament hope that the prophets talk much about in much detail. And the Jews believe that because sin brought the curse and sin brought the dominion of death and of Satan, that righteousness would bring the kingdom of God. Righteousness would bring God's rule and God's blessing. Now, do we believe that as Christians? What do we disagree with there? Well, if you define the kingdom as God's rule that brings the blessing and kicks out the enemies, I think we agree with everything that the Jews believed. 
God rules over all, but some things are not under his rule. Satan is the God of the sage, and one day God's going to come and wipe out Satan. Sin brings the curse. Righteousness brings the blessing. We believe all that. And the Jews believed that the Messiah would bring righteousness. Messiah was the one who was going to come and bring the kingdom of God and kick out Satan and bring righteousness to the earth. We believe that. The difference is, is what we understand about righteousness. Because the Jews say, well, Messiah is going to come and bring righteousness. That means he's going to come and bring the law. That means he's going to make us all obedient to the law. In preparation for the Messiah, we need to obey the law and be righteous. Righteousness comes through works. That's how the Jews understand it. And as Christians, what do we believe about righteousness? And what do we believe about the blessing coming on righteousness? That is that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes as a gift. It's not on the basis of your works. It's on the basis of Christ's death and your faith in what he has accomplished and that he is the one who brings righteousness through his death. So how then are we to understand the proclamation the kingdom of God is at hand? This is Christ's message, but it confused even John the Baptist and was confusing for most Jews and perhaps even for many Christians. This is what we're going to deal with in the next, in these next few sermons, in the next few chapters, the controversy of the message of Jesus that the kingdom is at hand. One thing I will say now, though, is that while they didn't understand what was being said, they couldn't deny the signs of the kingdom were being performed. Jesus was healing the sick, casting out devils, raising the dead. All these things are supposed to happen when the Messiah comes. All these things are supposed to happen when the kingdom of God comes and reverses the curse. And all of a sudden you got Jesus doing all these miracles, sending out the apostles, doing these miracles. People say, I don't understand this message of the kingdom, but I have a pretty hard time denying all the signs of the kingdom are taking place. entrance into the kingdom this good news of the kingdom being here and that you can enter it we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount brings true wholeness and health and forgiveness and blessing now just very briefly because we are running out of time just want to touch on some of the practical logistics of their mission in verse 9 and 10 Jesus says you're not to take anything with you when you go proclaiming this message, freely you have received, freely give. He says, you're not, in this, you're not using the gospel to acquire wealth. Now this is not a prohibition of receiving, is it? Because even though he says, freely you've received, freely give, and even though he says, don't take two staffs and don't take two cloaks, he says, go to someone's house, live there and eat whatever they give you, right? The laborer is worthy of his, of his wage. The gospel, the workman, is worthy of his food. So Jesus fully anticipates that they're going to be taken care of. That's why he says, don't take any money with you. So he's not saying don't accept any help from other people. He's just saying, trust God to provide your needs, and don't, you're not here to acquire wealth. You're not here to get multiple cloaks and multiple garments and gold and silver and brass. You're here to preach the gospel and people will take care of you. It's about the gospel. It's about the message. He says, when you go into a person's home, salute it. 
And if the person there is worthy or suitable, if it fits, then let your peace come upon it. And if it doesn't, then your, your peace will return to you. This is not a magical statement, but one of relationship. If you compare it with Luke, uh, Jesus says, when you go into a house, say, peace be unto this house. And if they are suitable, then you'll come in. If they're not, then your peace will leave. Okay, guess peace not unto this house. Actually, not going to be very good for this house if they reject you. Assuming they reject you because of Christ. So, this is just very practical. And there is some principles you can apply from this today. Um, I, I'd like to say uh, my thanks to Alan and Deanna. When I came here about four years ago, I didn't have any um, provision, but Alan and Deanna invited me into their home, and I've stayed there ever since. It says, don't go out of the house, um, because if you go out of the house, you might offend your host. Also, you might give the impression that, eh, this house isn't good enough for me, I need another place to stay, right? But um, I'm thankful for the provision of the saints here, and for Alan and Deanna's hospitality. It's been wonderful. So, if someone is not suitable, however, if a house rejects you, if a city rejects you, what does Jesus say in verse 14? Whoever will not receive you for the sake of Christ now, it's not that they reject you because they don't like the color of your hair, but they know you're coming with the gospel of the kingdom. They've heard about Jesus, they know you're his apostles, and you come along to them and they reject you, and they don't hear your words, they don't receive them, when you depart, you are to shake the dust, of your, the dust off of your feet. That's a really intense symbolism. Did you know the Pharisees used to do this? When they left a heathen land and returned to Israel, they would shake the dust off their feet, probably repudiating where they've been and saying, it's not worthy for us. However, in Mark and Luke, Jesus says, this is as a witness unto them. This is, this is even an act of mercy so that they might see that rejecting you is a very serious thing and they might consider what they've done as a witness unto them. You're to shake the dust of your feet. And notice verse 15. This shows the highest importance Jesus places upon the gospel of the kingdom and the message that he has for people. If you reject it, it will be worse for you on judgment day than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah is a byword. Sodom and Gomorrah is, in everyone's mouth, it's a bad taste. They're the really bad guys in the Old Testament. And you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What Jesus is saying here is that, look, a person will not be damned simply for big, gross sins. That's what most people think, right? How many people in this world believe what Jesus says here? No, you'll, you'll be damned if you do some big sin. If you live in a certain kind of reckless way. But if you're a good person, you'll be okay. Jesus says, man, you could be as religious a Jew as anything. You could be a really ostensibly great guy. If you reject the words of the apostles and the message of the kingdom, it will be worse for you on Judgment Day than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And you probably think Sodom and Gomorrah are really bad. You might not live like Sodom and Gomorrah. You might, you might not be doing all those lewd things that they did. It will be worse for you because you've rejected the gospel of the kingdom. 
The most dangerous thing in the whole world, brothers and sisters, is to reject the gospel of the kingdom, to reject the gospel of Christ. And while hearing the gospel is the only way you can be saved, if you reject it, that hearing of the gospel makes your damnation even worse. So Christ becomes either your salvation or the greatest stumbling block and your ultimate destruction and demise. How do you listen to the gospel? Do you listen to it casually? Do you listen to it? That's nice. Oh, all these things about Jesus is nice. Oh, I kind of believe it, but kind of don't. Some things I believe, some things I don't. Do you reject it? If you reject the gospel, it will be worse for you on Judgment Day than for Sodom and Gomorrah. So in closing this morning, let me ask you, have you believed in the gospel of the kingdom? Each one of you need to ask this about yourself now in the light of what Jesus has said. Have you, have you listened to the words of Christ and the words of the apostles? Have you received them? This is what they have to say. You are a sinner and your sin has brought upon you wrath and a curse. Every single one of us has done wrong and we know we've done wrong. We are sinners. We do what we know is wrong and for this reason, God's justice demands our death, demands our punishment and his wrath is against our sin and us because we have sinned. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came into this world because God loves this world and sent his son to die upon the cross for our sins. To die upon the cross for your sins. Christ bore the penalty that you deserve on the cross when he came 2,000 years ago. As we already read, all we like sheep have gone astray each one of us, that includes me and you, have turned to our own way and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and our peace is found in his death. Righteousness, forgiveness, and salvation come as a gift and not as something that you must work for and something you must earn. You are not righteous by the good deeds that you do because if you look at your life and if God were to judge you on judgment day and say, is this person righteous by the deeds that they did? It would always be no because you are a sinner. None of us have ever stopped our sins. None of us have ever cleansed our hands and purified our own hearts. Only through the blood of Christ as we sang this morning can you be whole again and forgiven. Simply trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and that his death takes away your sin and God forgives you and makes you whiter than snow. Believe in the love of God this morning. God does not want you to perish. He has your best interest in his heart. He cares about your soul and he preaches to you to the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Christ, so that you might be saved. Are you listening to him? If you aren't, I beg you this morning to listen to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son into this world to be our savior, to die on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, giving us hope of everlasting life. 
Thank you for the free gift. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, I pray that we would all take this seriously so that we wouldn't be found on Judgment Day to have rejected the gospel or to have thought that we were good or righteous by our own works and ignore what you have to say. Lord, I pray also that your church and each member in it would hear your call to love and that you, Lord, would use us to share the good news of the kingdom to those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen.